Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we are talking with El Monitor State Department correspondent Elizabeth Hagedorn about U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia last week and what comes next in U.S. policy in the region. Elizabeth, welcome back to On the Middle East. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. President Biden was in the region last week visiting Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. Let's focus here on Biden's meetings in the kingdom, where in addition to his sit-downs with King Salman, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and Saudi officials, the president also participated in a summit of the GCC leaders plus Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt. Now, a great deal of the post-trip commentary has focused on the fist bump with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, how the trip validated MBS's leadership with, according to some critics, little in return for the United States with regard to commitments by the kingdom to resume its role as a swing supplier to help bring down energy prices. How do you assess the fallout so far, and how do you stack the progress on the big issues going into Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, specifically energy security and human rights. Right. Well, a lot has been made of what Biden actually gained from taking this trip. And it's true that on Israeli-Arab normalization, there were some incremental announcements. Saudi Arabia, for example, quietly said it was opening its airspace to all carriers, including from Israel. And in another deal tied to eventual normalization with Israel um, and Saudi Arabia, Biden announced the planned withdrawal of U.S. and international forces from a strategic island in the Red Sea. You also saw a handful of cooperation agreements signed with Saudi Arabia on issues like cybersecurity, public health, and space exploration. But we saw no such agreement or public concession on human rights. Biden said that he made his views known to the crown prince about Jamal Khashoggi's murder, though the Saudis have, have since disputed Biden's telling of that exchange. But Khashoggi aside, we heard nothing specific from the president and certainly no public condemnation from him on the kingdom's human rights record, including its targeting of dissidents in Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's transnational repression of Saudi citizens. Nor did we hear anything substantive on oil. Prior to the trip, the White House had downplayed expectations that the president would come home with an agreement from the Saudis on raising supply, but oil definitely loomed large over this trip. It's hard to imagine Biden would have even taken the trip were it not for Russia's war in Ukraine and its disruption of global energy markets. After his meeting with Saudi officials, Biden hinted that there could be a deal yet to come on production, but in the coming weeks was how he put it. So to summarize, we didn't see any immediate pledge on oil or commitments on human rights from this trip, though some analysts, and we talk about this in the takeaway, would say that that was never Biden's intention, that the goal wasn't exactly to show up to Jeddah with a checklist of deliverables, but rather to shore up strained relations with 
Saudi and other Gulf leaders who the administration sees as critical to curbing Russia, China, and of course, Iran's influence. Um, you know, Andrew, I'm wondering what your take is on the outcomes of this trip, especially with regard to Iran and the inc increasingly unlikely prospects of a nuclear deal. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, first, regarding uh, what you said at the end, uh, I think on overall, uh, the trip was indeed a needed reset uh, for U.S.-Saudi relations because the U.S. can't have a national security policy or an effective national security policy in the region without a reliable working relationship with the kingdom. And as you pointed out, and as we pointed out in the takeaway, some critics of the administration have said, well, there weren't a lot of uh, returns uh, that President Biden could bring back, but there are a lot of issues and challenges in the region. Uh, there's the fragile Yemen ceasefire. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. As you mentioned rightly, global energy security, dealing with Iran, all of these are issues of consequence and all depend on U.S.-Saudi relations working fluidly. Now, on human rights, there was nothing in the statement, but President Biden did put the issue of Khashoggi on the table and made clear that such behavior is unacceptable from an American perspective. And look at what's happened to this relationship over the last few years because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And of course, the Crown Prince responded, pointing out uh, his concerns. I won't get into, as you know, some of the he said, he said in the readouts, but just to say that this is the type of exchange that was absolutely needed to air differences and the fault lines between Washington and Riyadh over what happened, and also to begin to address these other big issues. The bottom line, it seems to me, is that the Khashoggi murder, uh, now following Biden's visit, is no longer the centerpiece of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. There are many issues of which human rights and, Saudi, and, and Khashoggi will continue to be a part of. Also, it, many, have, many of the critics haven't pointed out the importance of the GCC plus three summit uh, and the issues that were addressed there, including the need for further integration and energy connections with Iraq, the important role played by Jordan and the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And let's not forget, there is a major food security crisis in the region as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that is being deeply felt in Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, and elsewhere. And that was at one of the key issues on the summit agenda. Now, with regard to Iran, I see this trip and all that was accomplished and discussed as a complement to the Iran nuclear deal, if there will be an Iran nuclear deal. I personally see the chances as still pretty good. And I realize perhaps I'm in a minority, perhaps even including among the negotiators themselves. Yes, time is short. Rob Malley pointed that out this week, but both Washington and Tehran are not giving up on diplomacy. The stakes are too high, and I still find it hard to believe that Iran will take a pass on the investment and export revenues that would come in if Iran can put an additional one to one and a half million barrels per day of oil on the world market. And indeed, what that could mean for global supply given the current energy crisis. Biden didn't set a timeline for negotiations. Israel wanted him to do that. 
but he didn't do it. And while Biden was warmly received in Israel, and it was indeed a, a genuine warm, the trip, according to our Ben Caspit, was a mixed bag in Israel because of these differences on Iran. And as we wrote last week in the Week in Review, conflict and the threat of nuclear proliferation is really bad for business. And the economic good news from normalization and integration more broadly is, is business in terms of the engagement of people, economic commerce, and of course, social and cultural exchanges as well. I'm glad you mentioned the significance of the GCC plus three summit. What were the implications for Israel and Gulf relations? And did the president secure any commitments on a regional security axis to confront Iran? You know, the security dimension of normalization is, is moving ahead for sure, but quietly we see that Israel and the Gulf uh, coordinate their regional military postures via CENTCOM, uh, of which Israel is, is now a part. There were discussions of uh, weapon systems, missile defense coordination. These are things that our, our colleague Jared Suba has, has been covering. And the way I conceptualize what's been happening here is that the U.S. has been focused on beefing up the U.S. regional military deterrent for the U.S. and its partners, Israel and the GCC, whether there is a deal or not. Iran nuclear diplomacy requires a strong military deterrent from the United States and strong coordination between the U.S. and its partners. And that was a big part of the trip. You mentioned earlier the, the minor or uh, small steps uh, with regard to Saudi-Israel normalization, uh, the overflights, the islands. Uh, those steps will continue, but has, as what was pointed out in the GCC summit, Saudi Arabia's position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is longstanding, going back to the 2002 uh, Arab Peace Initiative, which was put forward at that time by Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah. And there has to be a resolution on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, according to Saudi policy, before there can be any big steps rather than these small steps towards normalization. There is also a, a diplomatic hedge that's going on in the region. The UAE is seeking to restore ties with Iran and Saudi Arabia, and Iran may also do the same at some point, thanks to Iraqi mediation. And Qatar and Oman have their own well-established diplomatic channels with Iran. There's another big issue, too, that we need to come back to, and, th and that's Yemen. The now four-month ceasefire is coming up for review on August 2nd. It is really fragile. What are the issues with regard to Yemen at this point? You cover this issue closely. What was accomplished at the summit? And most importantly, what needs to happen next? Can this ceasefire continue? And can we move ahead towards a real political solution to this conflict? It's a good question, Andrew. I mean, this visit to Saudi Arabia was a chance for Biden to shore up support for that ceasefire, which for the last four months has largely paused the fighting between the Iran-backed Houthi rebels and the Saudi-supported Yemeni government. Since that truce was signed in early April, the Saudi-led coalition has 
uh, largely halted its air airstrikes and Houthis have largely refrained from launching cross-border attacks on Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But that truce, as you mentioned, is set to expire on August 2nd. The United Nations would like to see it extended for an additional six months. Uh, the U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking, is working on that as well. But we didn't see any major breakthrough coming out of Biden's trip or concessions from Saudi Arabia that could help consolidate that truce. Biden did say that Saudi Arabia had committed to extending and strengthening the truce in Yemen. And to be clear, you know, the Houthis have to live up to their end of the bargain, too. And, and that means primarily opening up roads into Yemen's third largest city of Taiz, where the rebels maintain um, a siege. So for now, I, I think the future of this U.S.-supported truce is very much in doubt, but we'll know for sure on August 2nd. Elizabeth, before we wrap up, I need to ask you about the status of the dual national prisoners detained in Saudi Arabia and in Iran, which you have written about and, and cover closely. Was there any progress regarding those U.S. citizens under travel ban or detained in Saudi Arabia during Biden's trip to the kingdom? And what about the U.S. and other dual citizens in Iran? You know that Siamak Namazi, the longest held American in Bakr, close friends of mine and others in our El Monitor community. We continue to hope that good news on other diplomatic fronts will lead to good news uh, regarding their release, which is long overdue. But tell us where all of this stands. Well, to start with Saudi Arabia, I think where advocates were hopeful that Biden could score a win on human rights was with these handful of Americans who are held there under travel ban or considered to be unlawfully imprisoned. There are several known cases of US citizens and residents who were released from prison after detention on charges that the US government, their families and rights groups say were bogus. Now they're out of prison now, but are still vulnerable to rearrest under these travel bans that barred them from leaving Saudi Arabia. I spoke with some of their families who sat down with White House officials before the trip and were assured that their cases would be on the agenda when Biden met with Saudi leaders. He did not, however, leave Saudi Arabia with those Americans on board his plane, as many had hoped. I think the families, however, are still hopeful that, that following this visit and Biden's meeting with Saudi leaders, that the kingdom can now be persuaded to lift these travel bans. Uh, you mentioned the Americans held in Iran. That's Bakr and Siamak Namazi, Ahmad Shargi, Murad Tabaz, and I should also say a U.S. resident is there too, uh, Shahab Dalili. I met some of their families yesterday um, who had traveled to DC for the unveiling of a mural in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington that is displaying the faces of Americans who are wrongfully detained across the world. And what I heard from them yesterday is pessimism that the fate of their relatives held in Iran is tied up with the stalled nuclear talks. The administration, to be clear, says the two issues are not linked, but these families are understandably not convinced. And, you know, as we previously discussed, a deal to the, revive the JCPOA is, uh, for many, I think, see it is looking increasingly unlikely. So whatever the outcome there, these families are urging the Biden administration to do whatever it takes to cut a deal with Tehran to bring their loved ones home. Elizabeth, thank you. As always, a pleasure to have you join us on On the Middle East, and thanks for your great reporting for El Monitor. 
Thanks, Andrew. It was great talking with you. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests today, Elizabeth Hagedorn and our production team of Beowulf Rocklin and Rosabel Hine of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next weekend. In the meantime, if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. Gilles' guest this month is renowned energy expert Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map. And On Israel with Ben Caspit. And Ben this week speaks with Nadev Tamir, executive director of J Street Israel. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where Amber and Zaman will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Mm-hmm.